All right, we good to go? Very good. We're looking forward to uh, moving on our study. Uh, poor Mr. Brummett missed one week and missed two chapters in First Samuel. Uh, because of the nature of narrative, sometimes we get into uh, sections of Scripture that we do very quickly. Uh, we could have easily done chapter 11 and 12 of 1 Samuel together, but I really wanted to take a time away from uh, the theme of our study, which is the Christian and government, and really look at some of the power of uh, the event of chapter 11 rather than just passing over really to get to chapter 12. But it lays a good foundation last week for what we have coming forward tonight. And so let's begin by reading 1 Samuel 12. Um, the entirety of this chapter, it's 25 verses. It won't take us long and is more than worthwhile for us to do so. I'll be reading as usual out of the New King James. God's word declares, Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me, and have made a king over you. And now here's the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I cheated, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes. I'll restore it to you. And they said, you have not cheated or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and is anointed as witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron, and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt, and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the arm of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord and serve the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father's. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain, that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. 
And the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake, I'm sorry, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Let's go, Lord, before we get into our study today. Lord, we do thank you for your word before us. We thank you for the opportunity to look into it. And as always, we pray that you might have the preeminence in what is spoken, that it might be under the direction of your spirit, that it might be in accordance with your truth, that it might be guarded from error and opinion. That we might be... Uh, willing to receive it with that authority, uh, with the discernment, the wisdom that you've granted by your Spirit to all who ask of you. And Lord, we pray not only that we might understand, but that we might have tender hearts to be willing to receive that instruction uh, with all of its authority, meaning that it would call us to obedience and that we might uh, have that Spirit upon us, not looking for reasons to rebel, but reasons to submit to your truth. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we spent some time last week looking at the manner in which God worked through Saul to overcome the rebellion in the land. That here is Israel rebelling first against God. We don't want God as our king. And this is going to be a serious sin. A sin that Samuel is going to, of course, repeat and talk about here in chapter 12. Um, but compounded upon that sin was that they got the king. God said, okay, you want a king instead of me? That's, that's a rejection of me, which deserves destruction. But because of the relationship that we have, I'm going to heed your voice, the voice of the multitude, the masses, if you will, and you took a vote and you voted to reject me and to ask for a king. So I'm going to provide you a king. And, of course, we saw at the end of chapter 10 that Israel's response to that provision was to despise God's choice. They didn't like the guy God set up as king. Oh, not him. You've got to be kidding me. This is a guy that can't find donkeys when he's out on the road. This is a guy that's hiding on the equipment area instead of out here dealing with some of these major issues we're confronting. You want him to lead us? And it produced a rebellion in Israel because they didn't care for the one God established as their king, uh, even though that only occurred because they didn't want God as their king. And Samuel's going to bring that back to their mind. So we have uh, a rebellious people, surprise, surprise, that because they were rebelling against God, it was a natural step for them to then rebel against God's man. And so to rebel against your king isn't a big deal when you've just finished rebelling against God himself. 
Remember that God says, listen, I'll give you a king, but I reserve this one thing. I choose the man. I'm the one who sets up kings and kingdoms. And we talked about the fact that that is not reserved just for Israel, but God says that is his role for all the nations. And that to go against that capacity of God, that really all nations until our modern era, uh, all nations acknowledge that there was a divine right to rulership. Uh, Whether it be a king, whether it be a Caesar, um, whoever it was, that they recognize a divine right to that. Now, some of them went too far and took on that divinity to themselves. And so we have men claiming to be God. But again, that was late, really, in the Roman Empire. Um, that was uh, laid into many of the areas. And we see, of course, in Scripture what happened to one man who accepted worship instead of just obedience from his people, Nebuchadnezzar. And we looked at what happened to him. God said, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. It's okay if you accept the adoration of people as king and their obedience, but not their worship. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar ends up spending a few years living like an animal uh, until he gets his head screwed on straight and recognizes that there is only one who is to be worshipped, and that's the God of Israel. And so we come to this time rebellion, and God has reserved the right to select a king. He has made that selection, and as soon as it was known... Chapter 10, verse 27 says, Some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him, brought him no presence, but he held his peace. The very next chapter we have this event occur where there is opposition. Only one man is incensed by what this foreign king wants to do to this nation or this city on the other side of the river. Remember, they're on the east, west side of the Jordan. Um, Gilead's on the east side of the Jordan. And Gilead is ready to surrender, but uh, what this guy wants to do is to pluck out the eye of every person, and that kind of is, oh, that, we didn't expect that. We were willing to serve you, but not with one eye plucked out, because then we can't worship our God. We'd be in a condition we couldn't do that. We couldn't go to the temple or the tabernacle at that point. We find, then they send and they look for help, and again, everyone's afraid, Everyone is weeping and wailing, but nobody's doing anything. Only one guy in all the nation responds with the Spirit of the Lord, and that is Saul. He responds with anger. He says, how dare this man do this? He, he, he chops up his oxen, sends it out to the nations, and says, if anyone doesn't come and join me to fight these people, I'm going to come and chop up their oxen and do the same thing to them. Well, the fear of Samuel and the fear of Saul gets a hold of everybody, and uh, they're more afraid of him than they are all of a sudden of uh, Nahash, the Ammonite. And so they join him, and of course they have a great victory, and in the midst of the victory, the statement is made, let's get the rebels who have been despising our new king, and let's put them to death. And of course Saul extends grace to them, says, no, this is the day of salvation, we're not going to do that. And let's head to Gilgal. So right after this first victory, remember, Saul was identified as king, but hadn't been coronated king yet. He hadn't been enthroned, if you will. And this rebellion, this division among Israel prevented that from happening. And we're going to see this kind of played out another time with David, the very next king, who people say, what do we have to do with Judah and the son of David, or David, the son of Jesse? What do we have to do with him? 
and they go to their own tents. And there's this division, and God is going to work against that, and here we find that. So we find the rebels dealt with. Um, they're granted some mercy and grace, and now we're going to move to Gilgal, the place of uh, uh, where the stones that were taken out of the Jordan when it dried up, and, and there was for them to cross into the land. This is the place where all Israel was circumcised before they started the campaign to conquer Canaan. And we find uh, before they headed over to uh, have the walls of Jericho fall down, this is where they uh, encamped. And so they go back there so that they could, as a nation, make Saul king, realizing that he'd already been anointed by Samuel sometime before. Um, He had then been presented to the nation as God's choice, but they didn't accept it. And now the third step in him becoming king is actually going to come to place, and that is where he is crowned king, is coronated, where they are presenting him before the Lord. They're going to bring it, and they're going to honor him. They're going to recognize him as their king. In the end of verse chapter 11, verse 15, it says that the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. They're there in Gilgal. They're having a great time. We're crowning our king. We're coming off of the heels of a great victory over our enemy, uh, and now it seems like this is going to be a great party, right? Isn't that what we do when everything's going right and, and rebellion is squashed and there's now this, this oneness in the kingdom. We have great victory. And here we come with a victory celebration. And in comes Samuel. And wouldn't you know it, the man of God is going to spoil our party. He comes on the scene. And the first thing he has to tell you is that, well, you guys got what you wanted. You said to me, we want a king instead of God as our king. Here he is. I'm an old gray-headed man. Uh, My sons are here, but you rejected them. You didn't want them to be over you. Um, I've been serving as God's man here for all my days. I've been doing it with integrity. He wants to uh, bring that integrity to bear. That, listen, you had no just cause to demand a king. Now remember that we started off looking at how Eli's sons were doing evil. And the people cried out to the Lord, and the Lord responded. It was a slow period, it was a period of transition, but it took some time, but God responded, and he destroyed Eli's sons, killed Eli, and replaced them with Samuel, a child prophet. And Samuel serves God faithfully in that capacity for all of his days, but people were seeing that his sons weren't up to his standard. And they kind of thought, well, this is going to be the cycle again. We don't want your sons to reign over us. But instead of waiting on the Lord and crying out to him and letting him do to Samuel's sons, just as he had taken care of Eli's sons, God can put the right people in authority if you let him. But instead of that, the people said, we have a better plan. We have a better idea. Let's have a king like the nation's. And so what Samuel's saying here is that, listen, when you asked for a king, I wasn't defrauding you. You were not in a position where uh, you were missing out on anything. I was faithfully serving the Lord. I was faithfully ministering to you. And if my sons had failed, God would have taken care of them. But you didn't trust the Lord. And you saw a future that um, you thought didn't look bright enough, and you took matters into your own hands. 
And I brought this before the Lord. He said, okay. But what this is really about is about recognizing that, listen, you don't have the right, you don't have a position, a place to stand in this statement defending your desire to reject God as king or to rebel against his choice of king because you really haven't had it that bad. You were preparing for what it could be. Well, once we get into the realm of possibilities of what the future might hold, uh, we're in dangerous territory. You know why? Because anything could happen. Try to prepare for every eventuality that could happen to you. Well, you know, a plane could crash in our building right now. Are you ready? You know, well, we haven't guarded ourselves against that eventuality. I haven't, I don't think the building would stand up against it. It might, but I don't know. Uh, It's pretty thin metal on that roof, trust me. Uh, We can't guard against every eventuality. We have to trust something. And for Israel, they're called upon to trust the Lord. He knows what Samuel's sons were like. He could deal with them. He could change their heart. Just like he had changed Saul's heart. Um, He could have wiped them out and started over with another prophet. He could easily have done that. He's already proven his ability to do that. And what Samuel wants to rehearse for them is that God is capable of establishing national leadership. Why didn't you trust him? And this is our principle of government that we need to recognize, and I think we need to recognize it very badly in this country today, in the Christian community, is that God is still capable. Even in a messed up scenario that we muddy with our idea that we voted in the president, um, which people are starting to say now that really maybe hasn't been happening for a long time, um, but... Uh, we, we think that we bring these people to power and that we can tear them out and rip them out of their power uh, based upon our interests. And we sound a lot like Israel, don't we? Have we really ever had it that bad? And I'm not talking about just in the last few years. I'm talking about way back in about 1750. Did the Founding Fathers really have it that bad? to warrant rebelling against their king, the king of England, who simply wanted to fund some things and tax them. And and, uh, is taxation without representation, is that really a valid argument for rebellion against your king? Well, not according to what we saw in 1 Samuel. Remember, chapter 8. The king has the right to do that. And so the watchwords of our founding fathers did not echo God's word and the principles there. And so what Samuel's trying to draw out is that, listen, you didn't have it that bad. You had a godly person. uh, And even if you didn't, you could still trust the Lord. And here's the history to prove it. Going all the way back to when we came to Egypt, did God not listen to our prayers? When, uh, yeah, you had a great Pharaoh and Joseph was second in command and you got your way. You got the best of the land up there in Goshen. Uh, everything was going hunky-dorky until there was a Pharaoh that did not know the Lord. Do you think that that wasn't part of God's plan? Of course it was, because Israel's promised land wasn't the land of Goshen in, in, in Egypt, was it? And so it was necessary. There, there come a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, didn't honor the God of Israel, and would be in opposition to them. And yes, 
for a long period of time, Israel was in slavery. But again, God's time frame is very different than ours. And in fact, we find that in the course of raising up Moses and Aaron and, and bringing them out and raising up Joshua, and the whole history that Samuel is implying here in his message um, is all about God raising up the people necessary to accomplish his purposes with regard to the nations, not just Israel, but all the nations. And so God raises up a Pharaoh. Why? Because he doesn't want his people being too comfortable in Egypt. Is that okay that God puts his people under slavery? Yes. Why? Because of the end result is that through that they cried out to him for deliverance. He raised up a guy named Moses, and granted it took 80 years between Moses' birth, which was already in a condition where there was opposition against Israel, right? They'd already been enslaved for many years. Now there's, there's the killing of children. And 80 years later, before Moses shows up and says, the Lord says, let my people go. Can we wait that long for God? Well, we looked with Eli's sons that it took a long time. 20 years. We got put up with bad government. But knowing that God is preparing something spectacular. And Samuel's leadership in Israel was nothing less than spectacular. How he led them and directed them as a child all the way into throughout his years as he rehearses here. That they had victory over their enemies, that they threw off the Philistines, that all these things happened under the leadership of Samuel. Um, and we find that God has been faithful throughout Israel's history to raise up people to lead these nations. And, but the problem was never the Lord. The problem was the people. They forgot who was in charge. And my contention is that we in the Christian community today forget who's in charge. We really do believe the American concept that we're in charge of the politicians, the government. We believe what our founding fathers wrote, that somehow we're going to do better than God at determining our government and leadership. And we forgot God. We forgot the Lord. Well, He can set up kings and kingdoms. And if that means that there's an insane guy on the throne of England that hugs trees and things like that, okay. We'll deal with that. And again, we rehearsed the history of William Wilberforce, whose willingness to work within the system as corrupt and bizarre as it was to affect something without war, without bloodshed, to affect phenomenal changes, not just in terms of eliminating slavery out of the British Empire, but of raising the whole standards of England's living. And we applaud that. But he did it in the midst of a government that the American British citizens rebelled against. And there's your two examples. One forgot the Lord. The other one didn't. And so here Israel is accused by Samuel on coronation day of their new king. It says, listen, you forgot the Lord. And when you repent, the Lord will come back and, and return. And um, whenever that happened, God raised up a judge. And verse 11 of chapter 12 rehearses those 
that God will raise up a judge. And he did that and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies. And it would have been sufficient. In other words, uh, the leadership that God raised up was sufficient to keep you in the place. The problem wasn't your leadership. The problem was that as soon as that leader died, instead of crying out to the Lord again, you went and cried out to Baal. You went to the high places and built altars to the asterisk. You murdered your children before uh, these false gods. You abandoned the Lord as soon as your judge of that previous generation died. Instead of crying out to the Lord, you went after other gods. And now you've done even a worse thing because not only have you rejected the Lord as your king, you wanted to be like the nations in your government. And we saw extensively in our study of chapter 8 how God has been at work in many governments, all governments, uh, and this isn't reserved just for Israel. Um, and so uh, the contention was, you've been rebellious in your heart, just like your predecessors, when they should have trusted God to raise up the leadership that was needed to work His purposes. And those purposes are always for your good. Even if, on the, uh, even if the road from where you are to where He wants you to be is a hard one with a, several generations of slavery to get to here. Can you trust the Lord for several generations of slavery to get to the point where you are walking into the land of Canaan? You know why there were so many generations of slavery for Israel? Because they didn't cry out to the Lord. They got comfortable in Goshen, and then this Pharaoh raises up, and instead of crying out to the Lord, they're going to go into this um, and finally, when things really got bad, they started crying out to the Lord. Because they forgot who their God was. Who the Lord was. They forsook Him, and there was consequences for that. And we're going to play that out here in a little bit. You've heard me preach that extensively. We're going to follow it again in the, in the text. So Samuel rehearses all this history to them, and saying, listen, God has always been faithful. He is working in all the nations, setting up kings. Uh, you had no right to ask for a king. You had no excuse. You had good leadership. It was me. And you've just witnessed to the fact that I didn't do anything evil against you in that leadership. I didn't take advantage of you. I didn't cheat any of you. I wasn't oppressive. And yet you rejected not just really didn't reject me, you rejected God who put me in this place. And you were unwilling to trust God to replace me. And yet God still, while you rejected him as king, said, okay, but I'm going to keep picking the king. Because that's really what I do in all the nations. You want to be like all the nations, here's what it's like in all the nations. Is that there is a divine right to leadership. God is the one who sets up kings and kingdoms which tells us immediately they're well beyond the idea of just Israel here, but into all kingdoms. And so we come now to verse 13. Well, verse 12, back up. When you saw that Naash king of the Ammonites came against you, you said, No, boy, a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Here you had God as your king, and you said, No, we don't want that. That's rebellion against the form of government that they enjoyed and they said, no, a king, we want a king over us. 
Um, and we have been in that same condition of rebellion against government for 250 years um, in this nation that, uh, no, we will choose our king. We want what we want and not what you want, Lord. Um, and it says, okay, we're at that point. Now what? Uh, you can't go back in the past and change our founding fathers' rebellion, can we? We can't do that. So we're in the condition where Israel is now. Um, we rejected a form of government that God said was right, and we forgot the Lord. We didn't trust in Him to raise up and tear down kings and kingdoms at His pleasure to accomplish His purposes. We took matters in our own hands. So now what? Now what do we do in this state? And when we have this kind of government, we can't go back. And that is an important principle we need to understand. You can't go back. There are certain levels of rebellion that while you can be forgiven of it, you can't go back to where you were. When you, if you know the Lord and then choose to rebel against Him, there are consequences that are going to live with you the rest of your life. And for a nation, the rest of a nation's life could be hundreds of years. For Israel, it's going to be thousands of years. Well, hundreds till they dissolve, really, but that's going to re resurface. But essentially, they're not ever going to go back until Christ comes in his kingdom. And even then, he's going to be a monarch. He is going to be a human king. Which is why Jesus had to come in the flesh. Because there was no going back to the form of government they had under Samuel. Samuel's the last of that form of government. There's no going back to it. And we have the philosophy that forgiveness means I can go as if it never happened. And this is our wrong view of justification. We used to say uh, the justification is just as if you'd never sinned. Well, that's not really completely true. That's not a really good definition, the way, a way to define that word. Justification is a judicial term that says, in the eyes of the judge, you are counted as not having committed the crime. That is that in God's view, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are now credited with the righteousness of Christ. That is, we are counted in a court setting as not guilty. Does that mean we are actually not guilty? No, we are counted not guilty. Does that mean that none of that sin has consequences upon me in the future? That it's like a, I, I, I never sinned before? Um, not in my fleshly experience. There are some aspects of it that go on. And here's the proof of it. You ready? Death. Correct? Doesn't death ultimately teach us, physical death, that while I am a new person in Christ, a new creation, and I have eternal life waiting for me in heaven, the fact that my body dies is still the, the leftover part of the fact that I was a sinner before I accepted Christ as my Savior. And if it was just as if I had never sinned, then the fact is I would never physically die. No Christian ever would. No, it's counted not guilty. It's a judicial term. And so, um, Israel couldn't go back. They're going to be sorry. Um, let's jump ahead a little bit. We read this. Um, and uh, the, 
Samuel calls down rain in a time when it is always dry. There's never rain during the wheat harvest season in Israel. Still the case today. God, Samuel just calls thunder and rain right out of the blue, literally. Right out of the blue. Blue skies, suddenly. We got thunder and rain. The people get serious now. And here's their response, verse 19. Pray for us to your God. It's kind of funny, they don't count him as their God. Pray the Lord your God that we may not die. <laughs> for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for, himself, for ourselves. So they, they're, they're sorry for their sin. They, uh, they, they recognize that as sin, they say, oh, this was stupid. What foolishness. Why would we have done this? And we have done a horrible thing. And Samuel doesn't say, okay, well, let's just give up this idea of a king and go back to the way it was. No. They're going to have a king from that point forward. That's it. You're in a monarchy now. He doesn't say, let's go back. He says, don't be afraid. You've done this wickedness. The question is, what are you going to do from now on? What are you going to do about it from now on? You see, repentance isn't about starting over. Repentance is, what are you going to do from now on? And so when we call someone to salvation, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not taking them back and saying, well, it's going to be like you never sinned ever. Well, that's not really honest, because that would mean that they would never be ill. They would never get old. They would certainly never die. Do we promise people that? I hope not. <laughs> no, we're not promising them that we're going to go back as if they had never sinned. But rather, repentance says that now that your sins have been forgiven and been washed away, now how will you live from here forward? This is what salvation is all about. Now I can have the righteousness of Christ on me, and real repentance means that I've turned from my sin, and now I'm going to live differently based upon the reality of what happened behind me. Not that I'm going to be judged by that sin, but I realize that it has an effect upon me. And where does this come into play in Christianity today? Um, we have individuals who think that, well, once I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I'm a new creation, and so the marriage that I had before I got saved doesn't count. And we have churches teaching that, practicing that, that it's okay to divorce a spouse after you got saved, because you married to them when you weren't saved. That marriage doesn't count. Really? Can you find that in the Bible? I can't. When you come to these kinds of passages where they're all repentant and you think, well, here's a great time to go back and start over. Let's just get rid of that horrible choice. The king has only been the king for a couple of days here. We're at the coronation. We can undo it right now. No. The result of your rebellion, you're going to have to live with as a nation for hundreds of years. And so we're in that condition. I believe that very honestly, that we're in the condition of living in a nation that rebelled against her king and has set up a form of government that in its very nature denies that God is the one who puts kings in their places, in their thrones. The nature of our um, government, uh, of, a, of a democratic republic, is that we decide we don't trust in God. 
putting that person in there. So what do we do? What do we do? And so let's go back a few verses in chapter 12 to see what Israel was supposed to do. Verse 14. If you fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice, and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. A very simple command. You can't go back and undo what you've done. God's not going to permit that. You rejected him. Even now that you're sorry, um, it's not going to be undone. You're going to have to live with this choice of your rebellion. You're going to have to live with it. In a long, long time, you're going to have to live with it. For Israel's a nation. When nations rebel, the consequences are really long. As long as that nation exists. When individuals rebel, some of those consequences are lifelong. And so, when I rebel against God and, and as a believer, and I turn away from Him and reject Him, and then I'm sorry for that sin, I repent of it, but in the meantime, I've contracted a venereal disease. I don't expect Him to take away the venereal disease after I've gotten done with the sin. Well, I said, I'm sorry, God. Shouldn't you heal me? No, live with it. Die with it. It's a consequence. The question isn't whether you're going to be embittered or selfish. The question is, how are you going to live from now on? See, Samuel comes to the people and says, Now, if you really fear the Lord, if you, if you keep serving Him and obey Him under this new kind of government, um, the Lord will still be with you. You can continue following the Lord. This gov- even this government can serve you if in the underlying nature of your life you serve the Lord, obey His voice, and don't rebel. Serve the Lord, obey Him, and even in this form of government that in its very fact of its existence reminds you that you rebelled against me and rejected me. But from now on, if you're really repentant, from now on, you're going to live under a king and you're going to submit to him, given all of what he said in chapter 8, and the Lord can use your king to lead you righteously. Now let's bring that into our scenario, okay? We can't change what our founding fathers did. Uh, They set up a kind of government that forgot the Lord. They rebelled against their king in doing so. And we have been indoctrinated with a philosophy of government that is abhorrent to the truths of God's word that says that I am the one who sets up kings and kingdoms. Thus says the Lord. And the nature of our government speaks against that, moves against that. Uh, It is the arrogance and the the individual rights and all of these things. We have, and we haven't even gotten into talking about rights and things. You know where I stand, most of you. But uh, we come to this and it's like, well, what can we do? Do we undo it? Well, you can't. To undo it now brings you into what? Rebellion. <laughs> you can't rebel. And if Israel wanted to fight off a king, it's rebellion because God put them there now. Was it right that they should have a king? No. It was a result of their sin. But now that they're under that sin, the question is, how are you going to live from now on? 
And so the question that we're really drawing out of Samuel, that we're going to really investigate in the weeks to come, is how do we live from now on? But we need to understand, like Israel, that it was a horrible mistake. And let's not repeat the mistake of rejecting God. Let's make sure that we live out fearing the Lord, serving Him, obeying His voice, and don't rebel against the commandment of the Lord so that we, with our King who reigns over us, will follow the Lord our God. And this is what we want to explore. If the founding principles of some of our constitutional government is fundamentally flawed because it rejects God as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then how do we function in it? Now, we're not talking about commands of our government, but privileges within our government. What our government does is not assign us uh, a law, but rather a principle. Well, if we deny the principle, now we need to ask the question, how should we now live within the context of a government that, that speaks against recognizing the Lord? How do I fear the Lord, serve Him, obey His voice, and not rebel against Him as I live under that kind of a government? And uh, we've talked about civil disobedience and the difference between civil disobedience and rebellion. We're going to investigate that a little bit later, especially with David. I mean, David's going to be a great picture of what it means to uh, not rebel against your king and yet disobey him. I mean, he's got to run for his life. So we're going to investigate some of that, what it means to live there, in that even when you have a King Saul that's been rejected by God, you still wait on God. You don't take matters into your own hands. That's rebellion. And rebellion against Saul in David's heart would have been rebellion against God. And so when we rebel against our government or the entity in it, we're rebelling against God. But when it comes to the principles that we know those principles be flawed biblically, now we ask ourselves, how do I obey God in my country um, and still honor the king? And I'm okay calling the president the king. I hope you realize that people think that's, oh, he's a, he thinks he's king. Well, he is, okay? And I, I don't know, if you've done any historical study of our presidents, if you go back to FDR, I mean, he was the king, all right? He just did what he wanted, and um, he drugged Congress along, uh, finally getting us into that war. But he was, he was the king, and we, we invoked term limits because we recognized if this guy didn't die, he would have never stopped. Why? Because we don't want to have God in control. We want to have a, a, our, our hand on the pulse of that office. He serves at my will. The will of the voters. Shame on us for carrying that philosophy into the church. That doesn't recognize that God has a role. He raises up men for certain jobs. And so, how are we going to do it from now on? Now that we're in this government, we have established that the government of our country was an act of rebellion against a king, and the nature of its principles is fundamentally rebellion of, of, the, of the exerting self-will over God's will, national will over God's will. Um, how do we move now? 
And again, it's no mistake that Samuel comes back to that word rebel. Don't rebel. Don't be a rebel. Just because you don't like the guy, uh, just because the formation of that government was fundamentally flawed and sinful, doesn't give you permission to rebel against him or it, the man or the government. Rather, you're called upon to fear the Lord, serve him and obey him, and don't rebel against his commands. And we're going to find out how to do that. That's really going to be the discovery process for the next few weeks as we look at how to live that out. How do we live out this instruction that, you know, okay, God allowed this government to come into being. It was an act of rebellion and wrong. Um, It's a sad thing that we have to live under, which is kind of funny because most churches are celebrating living in this government, that we're the best on earth, um, when God might have a very different view of this kind of government. And by the way, we are exporting this government all over the, country, all over the world um, with utter disaster as a result. Everywhere we take it. Everywhere we try to take this kind of government around the world, it destroys that nation. Because it is fundamentally flawed. And we've looked at that, that we go into a place like Syria, we go into Iraq, we de- have excuse to depose God's man who was providing an environment where Christians could worship. And now, with our meddling, Christians are being slaughtered in those very countries. In Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, in Egypt, in the Central African Republic. We've gone in and disrupted the one that God put into authority there because, oh, he's a despot. Well, if you ask the Christians in those countries, they didn't have that attitude. They're like, well, at least he let us worship and now we're on the slaughtering block. Who would you rather have? An American-backed rebel or a God-ordained king. We need to understand rebellion is what it is. It is against God. And so, just as our founding fathers shouldn't have rebelled against their king, neither should we rebel against our government. How do we do that? And we're going to be investigating that in the weeks to come. Hopefully you'll not hate me and think that... uh, uh, I am... It is an un-American thought, but yet the biblical nature of it calls us to be the best Americans there is in America. To understand the form of government as being opposed to God and yet willing to surrender to it, not in philosophy, but in action. And how we do that. How are we going to live from now on? Okay, we're sorry we rebelled against the king of England. What do we do now? And that's what Samuel calls us to. Well, fear the Lord, serve God, obey His voice, and don't rebel against His commandments. And we have a commandment that we are to submit to those in authority over us. What does that mean? We're going to look at the extent and breadth of that in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we have a difficult time here because we have so much that we have been 
ingrained with, not only in our society, in our uh, schools, in our philosophy, but even within our churches and our religions. And Lord, we pray that we might uh, stop uh, seeing a one certain form of government as a Christian form, but rather recognize it for what it is. That we might not forget you. That we might remember that you are still the Lord. That we can trust you. And we can wait upon you. And that you really do have our best interests in your heart. And Lord, we pray that we might do as Samuel instructed Israel that day. To fear you. Listen to you. Follow you. Obey you and to not rebel against your command. Help us in this, Lord. Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.